0: And welcome to the New Lines Magazine podcast. Uh, my name is Kareem Shaheen, and I'm your host for today, sitting in for Faisal Al and his uh, Dulce British tones. Uh, you know, I had uh, British teachers when I was in, uh, in school, but uh, I wonder how different my life would have been if I had picked up the accent. Uh, but I digress. Uh, today, we've got a very special guest with us. Uh, his name is Asa Khattab, and he's a uh, Syrian journalist uh, who's uh, covered Syria for several years now. Asa, how are you? Where does this podcast find you?
1: Hi, Karim. I'm now in Paris, um, where I live, where I've been living for the past two years, and I'm very happy to be with you today. I'm, I'm really happy to have you here, too. Uh, so, As I'm, I'm going to
0: jump right in. Uh, you wrote for us a, an incredible piece called Why I Stopped Writing About Syria. Um, And I wanted to start by asking you to uh, tell our our listeners a little bit about your career as a journalist, uh, how you got started, uh, and especially how you got started as a journalist in Syria. Um, You know, uh, when you got started, there wasn't uh, a whole uh, lot of space for journalists to, um, you know, flourish, to write about uh, what they want to write about. Uh, So what got you into the profession in the first place?
1: True. I mean, it was a um, weird decision from the beginning, You know, in the eyes of my family, for example, or everyone around me, when I said that I want to become a journalist, and I want to go to university and study journalism. um, First of all, because of um, what society normally requires of people. So to study medicine or um, pharmacy or engineering. um, In Syria, people kind of look down on, um, you know, uh, journalism, literature, Um, other kinds of fields of study and the other point which was a more valid point of course than the first one was that Syria is not the best country for journalists uh, to flourish and to work and I did not want to become someone who works for um, you know regime-owned media even before the war so to speak and uh, even before the war and I um, wanted to do it anyway and I thought you know I'd figure it out later and to see Uh, where it could take me, whether inside the country or outside of it. And I, of course, wanted to become a journalist since before the revolution in 2011. I did go to Damascus and study journalism at school. Didn't learn much because of, you know, you can imagine studying journalism in uh, Assad, Syria. But um, it really started when I got around because of, um, luckily, you know, speaking uh, foreign languages and being as I say in the piece, foolish enough to uh, risk my life and go around working with uh, teams of foreign journalists visiting the country from Britain, from the United States, France, Germany, uh, to function basically as the interpreter in theory, but also in practice do a little bit more. So uh, even though I had just started doing journalism, I was relying on personal connections uh, to find sources and my knowledge of the country to kind of know where to go and where we can find interesting stories or people to talk to. And that helped me in the beginning to watch professional journalists do their jobs and learn from that, but also to start a a network of, of journalists that I could later, you know, use in order to get jobs when I left Syria. And even before leaving Syria, I managed to get a job with an international news agency Um, although it was in secret because I technically did not have the right to have this kind of job when I live in uh, regime-held areas. And here we're talking, of course, the war had already started. So I would go and report from different cities and then uh, travel every month or so to Lebanon from where I could do phone calls to opposition-held areas and where I also could collect my salary. That continued, of course, until I started to face some problems because of my work and then had to leave the country where I found myself in in Lebanon as an illegal, uh, undocumented Syrian immigrant, much as hundreds of thousands of Syrians. And it was when I also managed to work from regional bureaus of some international news outlets for three years before moving on to Paris to claim asylum.
0: So uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how it works exactly, uh, because, you know, your case is, um, uh, I mean, so obviously, the, the Syria uh, war is, is, uh, is an extraordinary circumstance, uh, but your, um, you know, the mechanism of a local reporter working with international media outlets uh, is one that's, that's quite typical of the region where, where a lot of local journalists end up working as, as fixers or as news assistants uh, working with international correspondents. Could you talk to me a little
1: bit about how that works exactly? Of course. So for many of those international media outlets, as you know, they most of the correspondents that they have around the world are sent maybe from headquarters or hired from a certain country to go to cover another, for example. And sometimes we get an international correspondent who's the Beirut correspondent for an American newspaper, and he does or she does the job for two years and then moves on to become a correspondent in China, or in France, or in India, or in um, Kenya, and that always means that they cannot have a full mastery of the language of the country or the region where they're working, or also understand the culture, immerse themselves really well in it, and have a certain network of sources on all sides, if there's a conflict, for example, that could allow them to work. So what they do, and especially in big media outlets, is to hire someone who is a local journalist, um, kind of like I was in Syria and in Lebanon, uh, who speaks the language, whose native language is, is the language of the region, but also speaks the language of the media outlet, in my case, English for the most part, and can write and speak in both. So this person can be relied on for the collection of information, the uh, sourcing of you know contacts, Speaking to them, doing interviews, and transcribing those interviews and taking the important bits from them. Also, keeping uh, the other colleagues who don't speak the language or don't really know the region as much as that person does um, up to date with with the news every day. What's happening? What's significant? What should be what should we be following? So I was I was this person, and many people have this kind of job. As you said, they're often called news assistants. When you have a job at this company or a fixer, when you're doing, you know, working on a specific project, for example, for a specific period of time. It's um, it was quite rewarding in the beginning. I remember being, you know, this um, undocumented immigrant in in Lebanon and quite unsure of what's going to come next, quite uh, scared of the future. Getting a job at an international newspaper at the time was one of the happiest moments of my life. I was very, very glad I actually said at the time that. I would be happy to do this job even for free, you know, without getting any salary and um, not much recognition either because it was a very big name. And I thought that this has I have I just made it because I went to to journalism school hoping that one day, maybe in a decade or so, I can get a job at one of those media outlets. And here I am, you know, a year after my graduation or so um, already starting to do this. Unfortunately, this didn't last very long, and then you realize that you haven't. And I, I say that in the article. I actually haven't made it. Um, it was very important. I learned a lot in in many ways, and I worked with amazing colleagues and at amazing newspapers and media outlets. But never really regarded as a member of the family, so to speak, of of this uh, media outlet. But as someone who's there to help, who and they appreciate this kind of help, but also not to expect to be moved around for example like they do with other correspondents or to be used um, in in covering different themes or different countries or regions so you you feel like you can only work on your country but also you're too biased to rise up to do your country as the main correspondent for example and this was quite a dilemma for me as well as for many of my friends and colleagues.
0: Yeah. Um, could you, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the difficulties that, um, I mean, what, what does being a member of the team actually entail? Um, you know, what, what were you looking for out of the, out of the job that, you know, you, you weren't provided with, you, you mentioned obviously the ability to report on other, um, uh, you know, on other stories and other themes, and, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but, you know, how did they see you? Did they see you as, as an employee? Did they see you as, um, uh, you know, sort of a freelancer uh what exactly was was the
1: situation there in technical terms i was an independent contractor so i would get a salary every month from this company i had the right to uh to work with other companies but i would need to ask for permission and it would need to be a very small project because i technically have a full-time job but i also was not a staff uh, employee so and that's mostly what we mean when we talk of, of a member of the family of the company because uh, in, in one of my jobs, for example, even though I had amazing colleagues, everyone I worked with there was, was absolutely fantastic and I worked, I, I learned so much from them. Um, I wasn't even given a, an email address from the company and I was not included in very important discussions on, on the team's Slack, for example or um, you know general meetings with the regional editors the general editors of of the newspaper so I was only regarded as this um, person who provides supplementary help on this specific subject even though I wasn't even included in in discussions editorial discussions on that one country for example Syria or Lebanon and um, not a phone number from the company for example which is you know, not so much for prestige, the email address and the phone number, as much as it was for um, uh, security reasons. Using my personal email address was not very uh, wise to do, but I had no other co- option. A uh, financial reason, I, I wanted to be compensated, of course, for the work calls that I did, which, as a matter of fact, in one of my jobs, I wasn't. And um, when I had discussions about my, with my superiors about my future at the company, I would always get very vague answers or even hear that, you know, I should not be expecting anything beyond what I already have. Because I I remember once being asked, actually, when I applied for something else at a company that I had been working for, someone asked me, why do you want to be a journalist? Now, I know that I'm, you know, very young. Maybe I, I don't have that much experience compared to other journalists who've been doing this for years and years and years. But... I do think that I'm a journalist. You know, I've been doing I've been doing this at uh, at this point at that point for a few years, and being asked that question was somewhat off-putting.
0: And um, you know, I I wanted to ask you how you feel that that actually impacts the coverage of these media organizations um, in the region, because uh, your your case is is not you know the only one. There there are. I mean, when I was starting out, I was offered a a job as a fixer for a big uh, international publication and. In, uh, um, in Beirut, after you know applying for a job as a reporter, I didn't understand why I needed to um, uh, you know translate and fix and arrange interviews when I was already proven myself as as a reporter, um, you know, albeit for a local newspaper. Um, but how, how does it how does it impact the you know the the work that they produce? I, I you know I have a lot of respect for the foreign correspondents that cover uh, the region. I think they're they're among the most talented and, and compassionate people in in the industry. Um, And and I think, you know, they they get to cover stories that we can't, you know, uh, case in point, you could not write about Syria from inside Syria, right? Uh, When I was based in Turkey, I couldn't, uh, you know, I was able to cover uh, cases like, you know, journalists going to jail because of stories that they'd written, um, while those local journalists were being tried and were going to jail. Uh, So so what do you see as, um, uh, you know, the benefit that foreign correspondents bring to regional coverage? And how is it affected by the fact that, you know, they're, uh, they're placing a reporter, you know, a very talented reporter like you, um, you know, as a news assistant, um, uh, you know, as sort of a uh, subsidiary to to their correspondent, um, uh, you know, and not, you know, taking into account uh, all your expertise and knowledge of the region and,
1: and the knowledge
0: of the local language?
1: That's a very important question. And I think in, in some way, it is very good on their part to realize that there's a certain need for someone like me or um, you know any of those wonderful wonderful news assistants working in, in lebanon in egypt in many countries around the world um i i if it's to be compared with having someone who for example doesn't speak the language yet and doesn't have as much immersion in in the culture yet um without a news assistant. So definitely dedicating a budget and a place for someone like me to, to support this, this coverage is very good. All the colleagues that I've worked with, um, without an exception in, in those companies, were always reliant on me to confirm uh, that what they're saying is accurate. I had even senior editors call me every now and then, and sometimes skipping several people that are between me and them in the hierarchy. Uh, to confirm from my own experience and knowledge that what they're saying is is true, it's accurate, and it's not problematic in any way, and I do appreciate that. What I uh, had, what the problem that I had is that I, you know, as I said, I did not have uh, room to grow within these uh, companies or to change what I was what I was doing. Um, so it's very important already that they have these people and hire locals in that sense. Um, they do bring to the table something that we can't and it's a very good point that you made there because in a country, for example, like Lebanon uh, or even Syria in in some cases and at certain points in time, it was much you know, safer and better for something to be said by a foreign correspondent than by a local one. In Lebanon, I was not technically a local, I'm not Lebanese, but i was syrian and syrians had their own status in lebanon that is very very inferior and i was at very high risk of saying certain things that my colleagues were able to say now that's very unfair and it's obviously not my colleagues fault but it's um it's good that we had this colleague actually who's able to say these things and who's able to push certain limits that i can't so that our coverage was not affected at all so I, I do like the coverage of the companies that I work where I worked and I do like that they respected the role that I played in those stories that we worked on. Um, sometimes the lack of a locals guidance or um, you know um, information can be seen in some articles I think or from certain the coverage of certain companies of Iraq or, or Syria or Lebanon. And you can see that, uh, you know, someone who's local uh, or someone who's lived long enough in the area to understand it was not consulted. And we had cases of journalists living in the region for decades, not learning the language and getting some very serious things um, misunderstood or mixed up in in the articles that were read by thousands of people and maybe influenced some others.
0: I think you you wrote about one of those uh, Robert Fisk in <laughs> yes, a, a, yeah. a seminal article for Receive for 22, an uh, independent Arab media outlet. Um, actually...
1: And that was, you know, a case that I witnessed uh, firsthand. He, he was one of the most famous journalists, possibly the most famous journalist to cover the Middle East for foreign media. And I got to see how decades later, the lack of, of the, the knowledge of the Arabic language, which I realize many people don't know that he didn't speak any Arabic, um, really affected what he was doing. Can, can you talk briefly about the the scene that you witnessed and that you wrote about? Well, it was actually the last thing I did before leaving Syria. And one of the things that led to me having to leave, I was with an international um, TV company in Homs, in, in the center of Syria. And we were embedded kind of on the same trip with uh, some other journalists, including Robert Fiske. We basically visited the same places and reported on the same things. I remember there were evacuations happening from areas formerly held by the opposition. And um, was, Fiske was standing next to me, not, not that far away, interviewing the governor of Homs. And he had with him, uh, I thought thought she was a minder, a government minder that was imposed on him uh, because of, you know, her clear relations to the Syrian Mukhabarat, which I would know later, and her very pro-regime attitude and her very, very bad English. Um, But um, I later learned that he, he actually hired her for some reason and chooses her every time and pays her money. And he um, he was trying to interview the governor of Homs, who, as a matter of fact, didn't speak almost any English himself. But the governor, at some point, looked very angry and uh, yelled at at the minder or as, at the fixer, saying, you're, you're messing it up. You don't understand any of this. And it was very basic quotes. And Fisk was standing there absolutely clueless. He did not know what was going on. Um, there was some other time when I, I met him later and we discussed that point And he actually accused me of... Uh, climbing on on other colleagues when I actually for actually having pointed out that his his uh, fixer was not uh, portray, you know giving him the accurate quotes or um, doing the job very well I was worried about his journalism actually I wasn't looking to get a job as as Robert Fisk's fixer next time but um, and he said uh, something in in Arabic that also didn't make any sense and then there was this um, this. Issue of him once talking about the Baath Party uh, motto of of ummatun Arabiyatun wahida one Arab nation, where understood Ummah nation as mother um. Wow, <laughs> that's that's incredible. Um, uh,
0: tell me, tell me about because you're in France now. Uh, tell me about. Uh, what happened when you accepted your asylum? Uh, when your asylum application was accepted, and, and you moved to France, how, how did that impact uh, your relationship with, uh, with the media outlets uh, you were working with?
1: That was a tricky thing because even though I had been living in Lebanon in very, very dangerous circumstances, worrying about being deported to to Syria any day, you know, any I left my house, I would have this fear because I, I had no status. And even though hundreds of thousands of Syrians were like me, I was probably the only one at that point who was also at the same time working for international media outlets and writing or contributing to articles that um, when you know, the regime in Syria or the government in Lebanon was not happy with. So that added to the fear that I had because someone can arrest you and deport you and then say, oh, it's actually not because of his journalism. It's just because he lived here illegally and that's our right to do it even though that would also not technically be correct. But um, so you can imagine that the day when I learned that I, abs- I got this visa to come to France, I was absolutely very, very happy uh, to finally move somewhere where I can be for the first time ever secure and safe and have my rights. But I immediately afterwards realized that um, it's, it's going to come at a cost. When I left Syria, I, uh, it was, of course, I did not have any other choice and it led to me losing a job that i referred to earlier even though i had it in secret and risked my life doing it i was let go from that job immediately afterwards because i lost my value i I, my value was that i was inside syria and i was no longer there so there was no reason for them to keep me as, as far as they thought and um, I was worried that this scenario might happen once again, and this time it could be a lot more damaging because moving from Syria to Lebanon is not like leaving the entire region and moving to France. And I know that I can always, at the time, I could always land a job at a, at a company or a media outlet or a research institute that's working on Syria, not because I was you know, so brilliant, but because I, I spoke the language and I had the local contacts and, and the context and the experience I knew that being removed from the region is going to cost me a lot of this value, and at the time I hadn't reached the point yet where I—I—it I, was my decision to no longer work on Syria. I was actually still very invested in continuing the work that I do, believing that I can work on Syria from France as well as I can from Lebanon. But unfortunately, it ended up also uh, costing me a, a position, at a company that I was working for eventually, and um, it was. Around then, when I thought, you know, I, maybe I can't keep doing this, uh, time and time again, company and company again, I just needed something stable.
0: What did um, what did they tell you when when you moved? Did, did you say, you know, I wanted to continue writing about Syria, and they said no,
1: and we want someone else. We had discussions with with several colleagues about this, and um, mostly they were feeling that it it doesn't make much sense for a Syria reporter to be, to be based in, in France, very far away. And uh, at the time, my point was that, um, you know, I report, I mean, they, you might
0: as well, you might as well be based anywhere. I mean, most, most journalists covering yes. Syria are
1: based in Lebanon, and, and it doesn't,
0: you know, really matter. <laughs> it's the same, exactly. it's the same situation. And at least you have the contact.
1: Exactly. And you know, that's the point I was trying to make. I guess some people in Lebanon, maybe every now and then go to Syria, whether to Kurdish-held uh, uh, areas or um, opposition-held areas or even regime-held areas. Of course, none of these was an, was an option to me. But um, maybe sometimes people meet people coming in and out of Syria in Beirut because it's such an important stop on the way. But I didn't even have any of this. I, I was Even when I was in Lebanon, I was not even able to do lots of field work there because I was, again, illegal and unable to go places and talk to people and risk being caught at a checkpoint or asked to show my passport or my residency and fail to show any. So um, I wasn't doing any field work in Lebanon except, you know, when the October 17, 2019 uprising started there. And it was somewhat easy to move around because security forces were busy doing other things than arresting Syrians and deporting them so i believe that it would not have any effect on my work for 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 those media outlets uh they some of the editors and the colleagues viewed it um a different way and i respect their point. maybe maybe they have a point but um it led to me uh, you know losing sometimes it gets you know i even heard that you don't want the byline to say paris for example the dateline you want Uh, When it says Beirut, it makes more sense. So it's the proximity that the reader sees when they read Beirut. It makes more sense than reading Paris and that the reader doesn't really know the background story to this person who is sitting in Paris thousands of miles away and talking about Syria. Maybe that's a very valid point. I don't know.
0: Okay, so so let me let me have this straight. So uh, you started reporting uh, on Syria from inside Syria, one of the most dangerous uh, locales in, in the world, um, and most dangerous places to report on as a journalist, where several journalists were uh, killed, arrested, uh, kidnapped, etc. Over the course of the uh, of the uprising turned civil war, uh, you left and, and moved to Lebanon, where you continued to work for uh, international media organizations, uh, again risking your well being, risking getting arrested, um, uh, you know, as as an illegal. Um, uh, you know, uh, immigrant uh, to, to Lebanon at that point. Um, and then after these years of, you know, risking your well-being, uh, reporting for international media outlets, you had the opportunity to move to France where you could become a citizen and apply for asylum. Uh, and uh, the moment you stepped
1: out of Beirut, you lost your job. Yeah, technically not the moment I left, but uh, a few months later. It, it It turned to a part-time job when I reached France and then um, you know, slowly, it was also being extended a lot because of COVID nineteen, which um, kind of made the process of finding someone to replace me somewhat harder in the region.
0: Does not make it less awful? Um, <laughs> I, I, I did you broach the idea of covering France for your uh, for the international media outlets that you already had relationships with?
1: I did, yes, and I still have this idea actually, but uh, I. I felt, you know, that when I first arrived here, that I I obviously wasn't ready. I was not going. I spent my life sitting and and talking about, and, you know, just as we did now, uh, talking about people needing to learn the language and know the culture and have contacts and all of that. And even though I came to France already knowing the language, but um, which of course needed and still needs improving, um, I did not want to immediately become a a France correspondent out of nowhere. So I wanted to take my time to read the the daily newspapers and read some books, understand the the history, the present, and um, know more about the country. Before moving here, you know, I wasn't really following France or the news there, apart from what everyone else, you know, reads and and hears. And um, I, again, I, you know, I've only been here almost two years um, and I, feel a lot better now about how I understand and know the country than I did when I first arrived. And I still entertain the idea of writing about the country. I do have one fear because I, you know, the past few years I was pigeonholed doing only Syria, which is another point that we haven't yet addressed, that I was getting ready to kind of move on from and do other things as a journalist. Unfortunately, I was not viewed as someone who also can do other things that can employ my um, skills and experience doing different regions or countries or themes. Um, But I was also getting concerned because it seemed like I could easily become pigeonholed once again, uh, Doing uh, that I could easily be pigeonholed doing uh, Islamism, terrorism, um, you know, immigration. Of course, all of these very, very important uh, subjects like the Syria as an issue is an important subject, but um, you know people look at me and see Arabic speaker uh, from an Arab country, so maybe that's all they can do. Which I'm very happy to be covering these issues again here in France. But it's important for me to make uh, companies realize that I can also do more that I can cover what everyone, or everything you know, what everyone else can cover as well.
0: I think it's extraordinary that you've got this this self consciousness about it because. Uh, you know, no foreign correspondent spends two years in the Middle East, um, uh, you know, let alone knows the language as well and and knows uh, you know, has a detailed understanding of the culture prior to uh to moving there. Uh whereas, you know, Arab uh, or Arab origin correspondents are, you know, expected to cover that exclusively. It's um uh, you know, I, I don't think a, a ton of foreign journalists would uh you know balk at the idea of going to cover France even if they didn't have a ton of uh um, you know prior experience with it which uh, w- which i think you know i mean for obvious reasons hampers um your knowledge of the nuances of the culture and uh, um and makes it harder to do your job quite frankly and 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 it's ex- extraordinary that you know even after spending 2 years um you know and already knowing the language uh, that you're still feeling self-conscious about the idea of reporting on it
1: yeah i think it has to do with just that actually maybe having uh, witnessed the the effect that this could have on on the reporting and on on the jobs of certain people and on how locals are left feeling when they read this kind of reporting i i realize that you know i should not be on the other side of this i should not be someone who's contributing to this happening in another country so maybe it has to do precisely with me having been a victim of that before. I appreciate that. Um,
0: I, I wanted to talk to you about the second, um, you know, angle in in the reason for why you stopped writing about Syria. So, you know, one of them is, uh, as we've elucidated at length, has to do with, um, uh, you know, the, the practices and the ways that, um, you know, international media handles, um, uh, you know, covering a big story like Syria and how it handles uh, working with local journalists um, uh, who are uh, you know extraordinarily talented like yourself uh but you know who who because of where they come from uh you know don't get the opportunity to uh rise in the ranks in, in the same way that, uh, that that you would elsewhere uh but the other side of this is uh is your mental health and and I wanted to start by reading a, a quote from from the piece that you wrote uh because I think it um it really elucidates the 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 challenges of kind of being transplanted from you know from home and uh, and from your experiences at home with moving to a place like uh, like Paris. Uh, so you say, to start with, I grew up surrounded by people who have never experienced the joy of peaceful tranquility, the insouciance of summer holiday, or the option of disconnecting for a few hours a day to indulge in a variety of pastimes. I thought that this was normal. I would hear the stories of family members who died fighting in wars or in the dungeons of Syria's secret service. And much like any other Syrian, I grew up trying to avoid the same destiny. I thought that this was also normal. When the war broke out in 2011, and many of us quickly grew accustomed to its horrors, programming my days around the possibility of rockets or mortar shells falling around me became ex- increasingly ordinary, like picking clothes appropriate for the weather. And when I had to escape, it was just another thing that I had to do. Uh, I I wanted to ask you about this idea of normal uh, and what it means to be normal, and and what the the thing that struck you the most uh, about arriving in France and how different it was uh, to your old normal. Uh, Could could you talk a little bit about what it
1: means to be normal? Of course. And um, I hope that I'll be able to answer this because it's something that I'm really still trying to understand myself. I was shocked to realize that what I had been going through all those years wasn't really normal, you know, ridiculous as as this may sound. Um, only very recently when I moved here, because I started, you know, thinking about it when people here that that meet me and ask me questions about myself, um, how I left Syria and why, and how I lived in Lebanon, why I had to leave, and I would answer them, um, narrating the facts and how it happened and why it had to happen. And then almost every time I would be asked, how did you feel about it? And i would find this a bit a bit perplexing because i wouldn't want to say oh you know not much because i didn't want to give out this image that uh i'm am devoid of any feeling i don't think that i am and at the time i really was not thinking about it in that sense or i didn't really have the room to process any of those feelings i suppose i when i would left syria i remember being on the plane and um just getting out and not really get it wasn't sinking it wasn't I wasn't being like oh I just you know lost my country and everything basically and I had, I, I, absolutely had no idea what's going to happen next I had no money I was about to lose my know that I, I've lost my job and um, start all over again and then this happened uh, again and at the time you know I had every right to and I should maybe have um, treated this and processed this emotionally but I didn't and I thought, if I could survive this without feeling depressed or feeling um, you know anything of the sort, I maybe have you know have survived the, the worst part of, of mental health, as I say, of, of in, my, in, the, in the article, sorry. And um, I think being hit with what normal means for others, so the normal that does not include rockets and mortar shells and explosions and checkpoints and fearing deportation to a country where I could for- face torture to death uh, is, is a very different kind of normal, of course, and uh, one that I wanted to make mine when I moved here. And this was one of the main things that I wanted to focus on. I wanted to live a normal life. I wanted to get a normal employment uh, beginning in the morning, ending in the afternoon, then going out to have a drink or dinner, go to the theatre or to an exhibition and not have to worry about work, outside work hours. And just because I saw French people doing that, and I said, that's exactly what I want. And I thought that this is going to be just me becoming happier immediately. But um, it actually contributed to me once I started to engage in this, realizing every single bit that went wrong in my life beforehand, how big that was, how impactful it was on me. I had not processed any of that, and it hit me all of a sudden when I was here, when I was living the the normal that, um, that actually is a normal life outside of what you normalize when you go through these horrible events when you're living in, in a country like Syria and Lebanon. And I, of course, consider myself to be very privileged. You know, I never was actually arrested or um, actually hurt. It's a very low bar to set, or... that for privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you you get the idea, and i that's that 's how it all hit me. I think that you know it was exactly a year ago uh, in towards the end of two thousand twenty when I was at the lowest ever, and you would think it I would have thought it absolutely ridiculous. I had been probably at, at you know my best uh, situation in living in in Paris, not having to worry about rent or about money or um you know, I had my social security, my health insurance, my bank account, my uh, job, my salary, my every, uh, my residency. Most importantly, no one's going to deport me anywhere, and uh, a path forward also towards citizenship, towards uh, pursuing my interests and all of that. And you would think that this is uh, absolutely the worst, or the you know the most wrong moment for me to to uh, collapse and have this meltdown. And yet it turned out to be the, the uh, ideal point for, for it to hit when you start to compare, not even consciously, uh, the situation that you're living in now with what you've gone through before.
0: You know, foreigners never really realize how important uh, ID documents are, uh, are to us, huh? Uh, it's one of <laughs> yeah, those things. Uh, my, my passport is my most cherished possession uh, in, in, this, uh, in this world. <laughs> Um, when, when did you, was there a moment when you realized that, uh, you know, the the true scale of what you'd left behind and what you lost and, and, uh, and like it truly hit you?
1: I think it should be around that same time, you know, a year ago when, because when I first arrived to, to France, actually before that, because when I was in Syria and when I was in Lebanon, uh, as I say in, in that excerpt that you just shared, it's it wasn't just me, it was also everyone around me. I would look around me and see people struggling and striving to survive month by month, whether financially or physically or health-wise or, you know, in, in, in many different ways. Everyone's working day and night, everyone's working weekends, no one's taking holiday. And that also contributed to me feeling that it was normal. So... It wasn't just because things were happening to me, but they were also happening to everyone else around me. And here it was quite different. And I started to see that and live in that condition. But in the beginning, the first few months, you know, they were crazy. I just arrived here. There were people that I wanted to meet. Uh, The pandemic was just hitting. And I also need to stress that the pandemic plays a big part in all of this because, all this dramatic scene that I' just described of me realizing how how or it hitting me that everything I'd gone through before coming here wasn't normal, happened during a very bad and very long, strict lockdown in in winter, around the holidays, near my birthday, that you know a, a time that I spent alone for the first time in my life in a small Parisian apartment. Um, it, it was dark and it was cold and it was locked down. I couldn't leave more than one one kilometre outside of my apartment and that contributed largely to it. During the first lockdown and when I first arrived, I w- I guess I was very busy settling in, starting the paperwork, finding a place to stay and out, figuring out what's going to happen next in terms of professionally and, and, and career. And, uh, you know, the first lockdown, I guess, for many people, wasn't as hard as, as the second lockdown. we were still trying to understand what's going on, what's this new disease, following the, the numbers, watching the free ballets and theatre plays that are being streamed online for people to enjoy the, the lockdown. And the second one was, was the more depressing one for many people. And um, it was also the setting for what was to happen with me in terms of my career and my background.
0: And how did you how did you cope from a uh, you know having uh, the 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 full extent of, of what had happened kind of hit you? How did you manage to cope with it? i um, uh, you you talked in the uh, essay about uh, taking long walks. Uh, uh, I think you've uh, you've also essentially read the entirety of the Western canon uh, over the period of the lockdown. <laughs> um, how how did you how did you deal with it? Uh, especially you know as
1: you were you know in a, in a lockdown and so far away from from family and loved ones? As you said, those were the main two things that I did. I, I walked and walked and walked a lot. It was during lockdown that I also discovered the the joys of, of audiobooks. So what really helped me go through all of these is that I would be at home sitting by my window and reading and then get out when I can and go on a very long walk by the Sen and listen to another book while I'm doing that. And they were all carefully chosen to be very, very far removed uh, geographically and thematically from uh, where I come from and what I worked on. So I would read about the Renaissance, I would read about antiquity, I would read fiction and poetry, of course, and all of that really, really uh, had a major effect on me, it really consoled me. And even specific authors, I could really feel how how I'm being consoled by, by reading them and going through their works. There were phone calls with friends and There were the walks, they had a very, very good effect on me. Of course, Paris is a very beautiful city to walk around. And um, then there was the period when I started to take action and I I started doing that immediately. I took a, a very big risk and made a very important decision, which is of course the title and the reason of this article that I will slowly phase out every single thing that I was working on that had to do with Syria and do something else, not to work on, on Syria anymore, and not to do, uh, a, you know, not to take a news assistant job anymore, and just focus on something that is uh, that I can do without all of this emotional and professional toll on me. And I began that very, uh, you know, December January of, of 2020 and 2021 respectively, taking that action. Um, sending emails around saying, uh, you know, after this project, I'm sorry, but I have to wrap up my collaboration with you. Some of those collaborations actually were what you would call easy, you know, I was getting uh, money out of them. And at this point, I was one of the people who can do serial work efficiently, and sometimes even easily, because I had developed over the years a network of sources on all sides, and I can get quotes, I can get, uh, you know, verify information rather quickly. Uh, I would even translate and do a lot of that. And uh, I, you know, decided, and then here here I realized once again that I was making a big sacrifice because le- losing a lot of my value by leaving uh, Syria and then leaving Lebanon. Now I'm also leaving them thematically. So that was a, a crazy decision in a certain way because whatever, what I w- you know, whatever value I was left with at this point, uh, I was uh, throwing out of the window this time, you know, by my decision and my intention. A year later, almost, of course, I can tell you that uh, it was the best decision, one of the best decisions I've ever made. And that action that I took really contributed to, to uh, how much better I started to feel almost immediately uh, after this the last thing that I did on Syria um, was over. You know, I even I, I wrote, I think for new lines also about Syria and things were happening there. I was doing some research and contributing to some articles and then when all I was on a podcast, and when all of that was over, even though those projects themselves, you know, weren't actively contributing to making my life worse, it was just the theme. Uh, afterwards, I was I was feeling very very relieved, and I continue to feel the same way now.
0: Uh, what are you What are you working on? What have you been working on since
1: uh, since you stopped writing about Syria? Well, what helped me take this action, which of course I, I need to say because it's not like I made. It it would be misleading to say that I actually made all these decisions and uh, pursued, you know, doing something else without any plan or without any backup plan to to protect me, in a sense. I was lucky that during that very dark period, I was offered a job um, that wasn't journalism, uh, a a job at a non-governmental organization doing communications. And it's for a good cause it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very good job and I really like it. And it's, um, you know, limited hours every day, nine to five. And um, you can do your job well and then you can go enjoy your evening or your weekend or your holiday. I'm about to have my, my Christmas holiday. It's going to be a long one this year. I'm very excited about it. And I stopped doing a lot of the freelance side projects um, that I were doing on the side before. But I didn't stop writing. Um, at least in theory because I now have moved on at least since then to from writing news and contributing to other people's news articles to writing what I want to write and thanks to New Lines and Receive 22 and other publications it has been a possibility for me to start exploring other things that I can write and sometimes they have to do with Syria but not with what's going on in Syria now, not news, but something maybe that has to do with the country's history or background or culture. And I absolutely enjoy doing this. And I think now that I don't write for a living uh, at this point, I think it ha- it's even having a good, um, a good effect on, and a good impact on my writing in general. Even though I'm, I've been a bit slow, but I think I've been recuperating. And now I think I, I you of all people know this very well. You're waiting to hear back from me on on some of the ideas that I was pushing for new lines to take, and then I would disappear and be very slow. But I think that I'm also getting to a phase where I can write these things and actually enjoy writing them.
0: I I appreciate that, and and um, uh, you know I I find myself in the same way, and it's uh, you know usually I chalk it up to burnout. Um, in in your case, it's um, uh, you know it's obviously a lot more than that it's a, it's a, it's a huge accumulation of uh, of many many things uh do, do you see yourself ever going back to writing about current affairs in Syria or or doing full time journalism again or uh, or is that in your past now
1: you really want me to do that next article do you don't you <laughs> um, um. <laughs> Always,
0: uh, look. I'm, I mean, uh, I when I when I say you're an extremely talented writer, it's uh, uh, it's it's not a um, uh, you know one of those uh, Egyptian compliments that we don't we don't really mean uh, you know as as we call it bekesh. It's it's not really. Uh, it's um, it's 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 a true thing. You you are one of the most talented writers, one of the most talented uh, journalists and reporters uh, I've ever seen. Uh, perform the craft uh, quite you. frankly and uh, and that's that's why i think it's uh um you know you you deserve a spot at the at the very top echelons of um uh of the world of journalism
1: uh, in our in our part of the world it means a lot to me thank you so much i i i'm not going to you know just say no i'm never ever again writing a word about syria uh i was having dinner with a friend a few weeks ago and and he was saying it would be quite funny if you get a Syria job or write something about Syria after you, you you write all this and you say all this uh, on new lines. But, <laughs> I mean, it would be a, <laughs> an interesting 180 degree turn there. <laughs> but um, I, I know, yes, I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon. I, I do think that I still need a lot of time to recuperate from that subject in particular and from what, what came to it as a package. But um, I obviously, no, I don't rule out ever doing going back to doing this and as i as i just said i'm still very interested in things that have to do with syria but maybe more of what relating to the historical context people who lived in the past century for example or things that happened um the thing that i was really you know fed up with is is covering what's been happy what's been happening uh in the past decades of course very unfortunate very important to keep being reported and i almost feel guilty because I have, I think that's a role for me to 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 play because I can play it. Uh, but I think that I have done, you know, what I could during those past few years, and and I do need a break. And I I don't think it'd be, you know, helpful for anyone if I don't take that break.
0: Uh, I I think you've 100% earned that break. Um, before you go, and, and sorry to put you on the spot, I have one last question for you. Um, in, in your readings in, in the books that, um, uh, you know, you found solace and succor in over, um, you know, the past uh, few months, the past uh, year, um, are there any particular uh, passages or, or books um, or quotes or ideas from those books that you found particularly soothing uh,
1: that you'd like to share? Absolutely. What a wonderful question. Because uh, you've you've put me on the spot, I may choose something that may uh, not turn out to be, you know, if I think about it, I may change my opinion. Obviously, there are very strong candidates here. I think that, of course, 2022 and 2020 were the years that I read most in my life. I'm very happy about this. One particular um, philosopher, actually, that I read a lot this year and last year was uh, Seneca, of course, the Roman First century um, philosopher stoic philosopher who who was Nero's teacher, which is of course not a great job to have, uh, knowing the emperor's history, but he was a stoic man who wrote about work, he wrote about labor, and he wrote about uh, the important things in life, about reading and about appreciating what one has, and knowing also that that a lot of things you know are meaningless and not really worth. Or the trouble that we do, including the labor that that we that we do on Earth, and I think reading Seneca's works and letters really um, were really influential and and really helped me. In addition, there are you know two of my all-time favorite um, writers, Oscar Wilde and Dostoevsky. I read a lot of their works and reread some of this, their works in 2020 during the first lockdown and the second lockdown, and just going back to to those familiar texts and Um, novels and and articles that describe how, you know, the human condition develops and and works is is something that I always find very, very helpful. And they continue to be very good friends and to, you know, um, provide uh, great entertainment as well as education in many, many fields
0: appreciate that. And, and on that note, uh, Asa Khattab, uh, thank you for, for being here with us. Thank you for your work. And um, uh, and I hope you take care of yourself.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Karim. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: Asa's essay, Why I Stopped Writing About Syria is on our website. You can subscribe to the New Lines Magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more stories on Syria and from across the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.